But it turns out there's a lot of interest in user experience. There's a lot of interest in knowing sort of the functional role of games. And so while a lot of the work, like in the 90s especially, was about aggression and addiction, I noticed that myself and people like me didn't show those symptoms and problems, played a lot of games, and also did a lot of other creative things. And so I started wanting to know less about how games affect people and more about what we do. Welcome to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between WAER and the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. I'm Kevin Kloss, and on this episode, I sit down with Nick Bowman. Nick is an associate professor at the Newhouse School, teaching courses on the user experience of immersive and interactive media. He and I discuss video game nostalgia, what's initiating those feelings, and what changing role gaming is having within our culture. Nick Bowman, thanks for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me over. So, Nick, your research, as, as I understand it, is focused on understanding cognitive, emotional, physical, and social demands of interactive media, which to me sounds like video games, but <laughs> how do you describe your work to people? I mean, when I talk to my parents, you know, I talk to friends at the mall and things like that, it's video games and VR, right? If a student were to walk into my office over in Newhouse, they're going to be hit with a lot of gaming nostalgia right away. So where my work started was very much trying to understand my own experiences. Uh, frankly, you know, I'm 41. I've been playing games since, you know, Mario in 84. And they're getting harder, right? Like there's the controllers have more buttons. Mm -hmm. There's more that I have to do. The, the game doesn't just want me to jump from left to right. It wants me to jump from left to right, make a moral decision to save this person or harvest that person while moving my arms and legs and do it online in front of other people streaming. And what I realized is that's a lot to ask of the player. You know, it's sort of a, it almost felt like it was violating a contract. Like I just signed up to have fun for 10 minutes and, and y'all want me to do all of this stuff. And as I look through, you know, financial data, player data, other experiences of similar gamers, what they expressed is games are really cool, but they're also increasingly complicated. And that's both a really cool thing. I mean, the, the history of the medium is about pushing the boundaries of technology. But it's also a question we have to ask, like how do players reconcile all of that to not get frustrated or not get, you know, too overwhelmed? And so it's, it's gaming research and it's a lot of fun. So you've partially answered this, but I did want to just, just step back before we get into the research itself is how did you initially get started in all of this? Is this someone who grew up gaming, turned academic, and is looking to unpack their past? What, what's sort of your path into this? Yeah, I think you're reading my mind a bit. I mean, uh, for me, uh, I hate to say that research is me-search, but sometimes it is. You know, you, you, you look on your own media history and you start to think of all of the developments that have happened right in front of you. And I didn't realize people studied games. I knew they made them. Mm -hmm. I knew games made money. And I knew there were scholars who would break down text and try to understand what games mean for people. But it turns out there's a lot of interest in user experience. There's a lot of interest in knowing sort of the functional role of games. And so while a lot of the work, like in the 90s especially, was about aggression and addiction, I noticed that myself and people like me didn't show those symptoms and problems, played a lot of games, and also did a lot of other creative things. And so 
I started wanting to know less about how games affect people and more about what we do with them. And so it very much came out of the privilege of growing up and watching the medium evolve and, you know, always having the privilege to maybe tap into a Nintendo or, or have a Sega CD at home and uh, looking around me today and, and seeing an industry that what, for 10 or 15 years now, uh, gaming globally has made more money than music and movies combined, right? There's something there in the pudding. Um, games are everywhere. Um, if you talk to the Entertainment Software Association, the average gamer is 33. Something like 70% of Americans play video games. And when you see a medium that went from my basement with a couple of friends to it's hard to not find gamers today, there's something there to study. And so... Yeah, I fell into it as a gamer first and then as a scholar second. And ironically, I always tell my students not to do that. <laughs> so I reconcile sometimes with not being too biased in my research, right? But, you know, I'm a lifelong gamer and that includes my work. You know, a word that's come up multiple times now just in the first couple of minutes here is nostalgia. Mm. And I think, I think most of us have a general in our head, maybe a personal definition or what yeah. we think is a textbook definition of what that means. But for someone who's digging into this, academically and through research, how do you define it? And what are sort of the, the elements you're looking at with your research that contribute to that? Sure. So believe it or not, nostalgia is surprisingly complicated. At the top level, it's a bittersweet recollection of the past. And they say bittersweet because it, it often has the, the happiness associated with some referential life moment, you know, um, but it's bittersweet because you can't have it again. So nostalgia tends to be very sensory driven. So smells and tastes and feels, sounds and sights, right? These are all things that instantly trigger this, oh, the last time I had that food was X. The last time I heard that song was Y. Where it gets tricky is that we've uncovered, uh, by, by we, I mean scholars, different types of nostalgia. And the two big ones are personal nostalgia, which is more autobiographical. I remember that time when I blank, you know, had mm -hmm. that food, heard that song, you know, smelled that thing. Then there's historical nostalgia, which is a little weird, but it's the idea of feeling a connection to a bygone era that you couldn't have been a part of. So watching a 1890s film and feeling as if you're back in those, those streets again or, or back in the, you know, the, the horse carriage at the time. And the reason those two are really important is they help us understand how people create a personal history and also how they understand history more broadly. So it's that bittersweet recollection of myself or the past, broadly speaking. Now, one of the research articles we're going to talk about right now actually deals directly with nostalgia. And that's a piece that you helped put together, Once Upon a Game, Exploring Video Game Nostalgia and Its Importance on Well-Being. The thing I'm really fascinated about with these, with this video game research, if you will, is the surveys that you have to conduct, obviously, mm -hmm. to, to obtain the data. What is the process like for you to get the right individuals to fill out these surveys to help inform your study? So one of the nice things about studying gamers, for better or for worse, <laughs> is they're very opinionated and they're easy to find. So whether it's going to the mall and going to the game store, um, or going online and going to Reddit or Discord or other communities. Gaming communities are incredibly vibrant, and you'll see all sorts of discussion, debate, discourse, 
not all of it is is necessarily fun to read, but they're a, they're a passionate group of people. Um, so oftentimes we'll turn to those communities. So when we look at nostalgia, there are retro communities who specialize in playing what they would consider retro or classic games. Um, it's been a wellspring of knowledge for us, especially when, as we think about the history of gaming research, for so long, scholars really only focused on the negative. And I think a lot of gamers got turned off by that. And in fact, in the early days of going online, people wouldn't, they wouldn't talk to us. But as we established a reputation in the communities, as we showed them other papers we had done, as we just talked to them, you know, with surveys and also just with interview questions, they open up. So Reddit has been probably one of the most useful places. And then we also sometimes work with uh, different language communities. So we might go into a group store, a player on Reddit will introduce us to a group of players somewhere else. It's fascinating to hear you say that it took time for, for people to trust you, but it does make sense if you think about the mm. the way that video games have been studied, whether that's the link to violence or links to, to other things that just have negative connotations attached to them. So how long about do you think it takes for you guys to kind of build some trust and be able to really see some results? That's a good question. Um, in some ways, the reputation precedes the researchers. So the first thing that these gamers will do is they'll look you up online. Mm -hmm. uh, they look up your faculty profile. First, they want to see if you're legitimate or not. Because oftentimes, we will have like a uh, an incentive, a gift card or something like this. And it, it seems like a scam, right? Mm -hmm. Like some university in the United States is giving away 50 bucks to answer questions about video games. And they're like, come on, that's crazy. So some of it is long before we even log in. And that's the hardest one. They're going to look up your research. They're going to look up your profile and look at your university and see if you've been part of this conversation before or if you're new to the conversation. So in some ways, you're almost before you even have a chance to talk with them. They've already decided. For me personally, I think it took probably two or three good studies, you know, two or three good studies um, where folks realized that I would respond back to their comments or I would follow up with them online, I'd share the data with them later and I'd share the results and share the manuscripts, just little things to let the community know that, hey, I'm a gamer too. So there's a little bit of flexing where you have to kind of show your game chops. Mm -hmm. um, plus, letting them know that this data matters and, and doing it in a way, because you have to be careful not to be overly rosy. Like I don't want to be seen as I only think games are good, but more games are just normal. And a lot of it was normalizing it. So I think when they saw a gamer who was also a scholar, who wasn't coming after them and, and sort of uh, pathologizing their hobby, but also wasn't trying to change their hobby. Two, three studies in, the trust was built. Part of that, of course, is uh, Reddit karma points. There's other indicators online that people check. So, you know, and if you don't have those things, you partner up with a researcher who does, and then you eventually build it on your own. So I don't have a straight number, but mm -hmm. I'd say for me, it was two to three studies before they realized this guy's not going to blip and leave us. He's going to stay with us and talk to us. So for a research paper like the one we're talking about right now, the Once Upon a Game paper, what kind of questions are you asking people who participate in this survey? What are you trying to get from them? So with the, with the survey... We had them start by walking us through a gaming memory, okay? And we asked for either an older memory or a recent memory. And the reason we did that was to see if we could actually get them to trigger a nostalgic moment in themselves. As an online survey, we couldn't necessarily have them play anything because you weren't in the room with them. Um, nostalgia normally is triggered by an event, a sensory emotion. 
So in this case, as they wrote these essays about their gaming memories versus a current game, the ones from memory had a lot of nostalgia indicators, things like childhood, family and friends, retro games. They'd mention older consoles. A lot of them talked about the, in fact, a lot of them talked about family. Um, so once we were confident that the older memories were nostalgic and the newer memories weren't, then we use those as comparison conditions to look at other survey questions. So they answered survey questions like, you know, this was an important memory from my past, or this was self-referential, or this was bittersweet, or this reminded me of the good old days, or days when I was quite happy, questions like this. Um, we saw that the people who wrote the older stories were much more likely to answer those questions very highly like on a scale of one to seven. The people who wrote the current memories are like, what are you talking about? No, like one, two, one, two, right? So that told us that the memories induced nostalgia, but only for the people who wrote about the past. Then from there, we looked at questions about like enjoyment and appreciation of the experience. Um, so the general idea was to get them thinking about their own gaming, they don't know that we had manipulated it so that only half of them talked about the past and half of them talked about the present. So then when we asked them these nostalgia scale questions, our prediction was that only people thinking about the past would answer nostalgia questions positively. And the important thing in the study is we never use the word nostalgia. Because if we would have told them that, they would just would have told us what we wanted to hear. So for, all, for us, they induced nostalgia in themselves by thinking about the past. And then we saw all of those indicators both in their written answers and then also in their survey questions. So throughout this study, obviously you're giving people the option to talk about something that they're currently playing or recently and then going, going back in the past. Mm -hmm. Did most of the gamers who you talked to have a past to dip into? I guess I'm curious here, are there gamers for whom they came to this later on in life, shall we say? Because if that doesn't exist, I would assume that would be hard data to collect. Yeah. So the nice thing about this is that we only study people who are at least 18. Mm -hmm. And so even the ones who were younger still talked about like Thanksgiving dinner when they were in elementary school. So some of the indicators we would see in those past memories were, again, like childhood, elementary, primary school. They would use language that was very, or they would talk about older systems. Uh, for those uh, for those students, it was N64, right? Or, uh, you know, I wouldn't consider that nostalgic, but, but they did, right? Um, that was one of the neater parts of the study is that it reminded me, being 41, that it doesn't have to be an Atari to be nostalgic. If you're an 18-year-old freshman at SU, N64 is nostalgic. That's like, that. that's the money shelf. Like, that's, that's my childhood. Uh, it also showed us that it didn't matter what your age was. Because we had older respondents too, mm -hmm. 30s, 40s, 50s. They all talked about to them what the past is. That's important because nostalgia is self-referential, right? So there's no objective date by which this is retro, this is modern. It's always going to be changing over time. So as a gamer yourself, was there anything that you observed throughout the, these studies that su surprised you as someone who maybe 
could have answered these questions sure. yourself based on your experience? Anything that really surprised you or stood out? The one that stood out to me, and it was actually one of the few times in my career that I got a little emotional looking at data. So, you know, we had the numbers and they all came out, right? The past memories had much higher nostalgia scores than the common memory, than the current memories. And that, that's to be expected. It was a proof of concept, but it hadn't existed yet. So it was important to get that data to demonstrate to folks that indeed these older memories can be thought of as nostalgic. You know, keep in mind, a lot of folks don't take games seriously, period. So it was important to show that. But it was in the written data. It was when people explained the memory. And the one that stood out to me was a, was a participant, and I don't know their names, right? And they said, you know, when I was 10 years old, I used to play Mario Kart with my father. And he passed away. So when I think of important childhood memories, Mario Kart is the one. And what it told us is a couple of things. One, gaming is intergenerational. You know, if the average gamer is 33, that means they have children. And we're seeing, just like I listen to records with my dad, our children are playing video games with their parents today. It told us that, and because of that, it means that maybe video games are just part of the media diet. That that's just something people do now. That that's a tradition they have around the tree, around the Thanksgiving table, over the summer at camp, whatever it is. It's, it's a normalized activity. It told us the importance of family and friends. In fact, most of the memories that were older, it almost seemed like family and friends were actually more important than the video game. They didn't talk much about winning and losing so much as like being around other people. Um, and then finally it was this powerful, you know, that was the bittersweet. This person's memory of their dad is Mario Kart. And I just got chills down my spine because for me, Mario Kart's quite different. It was school and my brother, right? Um, but it, it just, it suggested this seemingly frivolous 16-bit kind of goofy video game where you, you throw turtle shells at each other. That was in someone's living room and someone's and their dad played this game for who knows, days on end. And that became their bonding moment. So it reminded us, and in all of this, those nostalgic memories actually led people to talk about feeling better about themselves in the moment. So what we were seeing is looking to the past, Having a bittersweet moment around a video game, a family moment, a sad family moment, but a happy one too. And that made the person actually feel better right now. It was like a, a well, it was like a, a resource for temporary well-being. That wasn't expected. What we thought people would say was, yeah, Mario's cool. This was Mario Kart's cool. I love my dad and I feel really good right now. That was pretty powerful. And if one person can do that, and we saw it in other participants, and then we see it anecdotally, maybe there's a lot more to gaming nostalgia than sort of kind of rolling our eyes when folks sell the Genesis Mini 2, right? Maybe there is something to be said about going to the past, especially what, what we're dealing with today. It's an interesting challenge you're faced with in this first study that we're looking at here where you're asking them to tap into these memories, but you're physically not with them, and it's yeah. kind of this online survey. Another research paper you did that was called The Bygone Feeling, where you measured individuals' responses to various types of retro controllers. I understand retro has a different <laughs> meaning uh, for everyone in, in this case. 
Talk a little bit about that study. Was that a study where you were able to physically get things in people's hands? Yeah. So this was the natural follow-up, right? So we write that first paper, and the first thing we have to say is the limitations. And one of the limitations was it was a memory. And while we could code the memory, we, we don't know what they were doing, mm -hmm. right? So we brought them in the lab. And we had them come into a lab. We had a bunch of Nintendo, uh, the NES Mini setup. And the reason we use those is they have the exact same controller as the 1984 NES. In fact, the same patent, same layout. It's the same screws in the back. It's pretty amazing how, in fact, in the paper, we even show a side-by-side. -side. Like, it's the same thing. You know, it's there. So half the participants got that controller. And then the other half of participants got a modern controller. What we were looking at is two things. One, we wanted to see if playing a game would actually trigger nostalgia, maybe strongly or differently because you have the experience. The other thing we wanted to look at is whether or not the physical controller would matter. Remember, nostalgia is sensory driven. There's the sights and sounds of Mario. We use Super Mario Brothers in this case. But there's something about that rectangle. And anybody listening right now is probably looking at their hands and remembering that tiny little rectangle with two buttons and you have a muscle memory attached to that. You have a mental model such that you don't even look at the controller when you play. Well, we thought that that little controller may have an added nostalgia kick that if I gave somebody a modern controller that was sh shaped curvy, more like an Xbox or a PlayStation controller, it would be sort of breaking the mental circuit a little bit. That was our prediction, but it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> So how did, how did that differ then? That was your prediction, but it didn't pan out that way. Which way did it go? So it turns out, I think we made an error in the study. So there was no difference in nostalgia from the little controller to the modern controller. Everybody just felt nostalgic. Mm -hmm. In fact, even the condition where folks only watched gameplay didn't even actually play. They also felt as nostalgic as the folks who played with the NES controller and as the folks who played with the modern controller. Everybody felt nostalgic. Partly, it's because we use Super Mario Brothers. It was a game that is so ubiquitous with retro gaming that anybody sees it. They can, you know, again, people listening right now are hearing the music in the back of their head. Even if you never played the game before, you somehow know the Mario song. You somehow know what Mario looks like. You, you know, the, 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 the chip tune and the pixelated art are just, they're everywhere. But it wasn't a total loss because something cool happened in that study. We targeted older gamers. We were looking at people who were, you know, 30s, 40s and older. We ended up getting a wide variety of gamers that went from 18 all the way up to 60s. Personal nostalgia, super high for everybody. Everyone's played Mario. You can play it on your phone. You can play it anywhere. Essentially, that controller probably mattered. But because Mario is so popular, it's been played everywhere. People who were younger, though, who had never played Mario, they had much higher levels of historical nostalgia. They were the ones that were like, wow, that's what gaming used to be. They would talk about it like it was a bygone era. And I think it added some empirical weight to this idea that people can feel memories for the past, not their past. They feel them as nostalgia, and it could still help them even with things today. And it also spoke to maybe the, the staying power of games. And so that was a finding that ended up, that was, I think, the primary reason the study was published because it was like the controllers didn't matter and here's some reasons why. But hey, look what happened. Like all of these kids basically 
were, were fawning over their parents' video games. And so it told a story about gaming culture, intergenerational play, all those things I've said earlier that um, are really starting to fuel this newfound interest in nostalgic gaming. So, you know, we, we've referenced that this is a sensory reaction to, yeah. to something. And it's very interesting to hear you say that the touch of that NES controller, the sight of that initial Mario Brothers, or maybe even the sound of da da dun da dun dun anything like that was giving them yeah. was giving them that feeling. Does that make it easier, harder? Is it indifferent in terms of trying to pinpoint really like what is that key motivator in terms of nostalgia? Or does that indicate that it's somewhat equal? So I think if I had to put my money down, I think it's the sight and sound. I think that we're seeing a lot of evidence that it can be enough to hear it and see it to feel this appreciation for the medium. Uh, one participant explained that it may have been because when they were younger, they watched a lot. I never thought mm. about that. But they're like, I was the little sister. I didn't get to play that much because my brothers were jerks, but I got to watch a lot. And a couple other participants said something similar. It might be that if you think about how media nostalgia works, music, TV, you know, movies, that's all they have, right? So you can't, can't play them, but you can hear them and you can see them. And so it may just be that so much of nostalgia is explained by hearing and seeing that the added touch doesn't add much more to it. It could be that gamers, oftentimes the interface almost becomes invisible in their hands. You know, if you play video games, the most frustrating thing is when somebody says, what button does that? And you're like, not now, I'm playing. I, I, I don't know. It's like I, I drive a manual transmission car. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to explain to you how to shift it. You just, you do. Like you, you, you know when to shift, you know when not to shift. It's one of those things where, again, going back to mental modeling, um, and this is in VR work as well, where the interface is designed to be transparent to where you don't even think about it anymore. So it could be that although that controller is like the literal mediator of the experience, the experience, my attention is actually focused on screen. So it could just be that I, I look right through it, so to speak. But I'll tell you, I was surprised that changing it didn't disrupt things. That one I don't have a great answer for. Um, it may just be more research is needed. Because if you talk to gamers, they'll tell you about their hated interfaces. Or, you know, there's always the story from childhood where you had the, the working controller and like the ripoff controller and then it felt differently. It wasn't as squishy. But again, I think gamers especially are so focused on the screen that they're, they are intentionally transported to that experience and not the thing in their hands. Because you brought it up, I, I'm going to be thinking about it if I don't ask you. <laughs> What's the hated console? What's the hated controller? Okay, so I'm a Sony guy. Sure. And if you hand me an Xbox controller, I feel like a complete noob. I can't do it. I can't hold it. It's clumsy. I blame the controller. I have. I argue I have data. Like, can I play my brother? If we play Xbox, he wins. If we play Sony, I win. When I was younger, NES had the rectangle controller, mm -hmm. but there was an upgraded turbo controller that was more curved, and it had like a slider button. And you might as well throw it in the river. I just couldn't use it. Um, so it's and actually a part of my research looks at interfaces and how people form relationships with them. And uh, yeah, so for me, it's uh, if it wasn't like the, the license in the box, like NES or Sony controller. And if you really want to laugh, 
and this is funny because I work in a media school, come by my office and give me a Mac. I, I can't use it. It's, it might as well be a brick. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about uh, things you've gleaned from the study and data you've taken in. So as we wrap up, a personal question for you. What's it like for you, someone who's been a self, you know, proclaimed gamer for most of his life? What's it like for you to immerse yourself into this retro gaming study and some of those papers you've done recently? What's that like for you on a personal level? You know, it's fun because um, on the one hand, I have a lot of deep experience to where, you know, when I'm reading uh, the interviews, when I'm looking at the qualitative data, I can understand it because I speak the language and I can, I can empathize with the experience. Um, it's interesting as I get older watching, you know, people in my studies who are half my age look at my content as historical. And that's a bit of a blow, right? At the same time, it's a bit of an honor. Um, it's fun to design studies. And I'm also going through the changes in my life where, you know, I'm looking for those bygone memories. You know, the, the thing about media nostalgia is it's, it's, it's a bit of a time machine. We can, you know, I could put in White Christmas and immediately go back to watching with my grandfather, you know, on the lake in, in, uh, in Arkansas, right, and starting a fire and, and firing it up. Um, video games provide this, uh, I don't want to say normalcy because I, I believe in progress and change, but um, a, a bit of a check, so to speak. Um, it's been fun to watch a medium that was always kind of behind the curtain or, you know, having to explain to teachers why you play games too much or, you know, having to sort of justify and rationalize why, why you would rather play video games than do something else. And now to see it just everywhere where people are interested in the questions, where you have an entire cohort of people who spent years playing games and they wanna know what it was all for. So I think it's looking at data that suggests that those memories mattered. That, you know, 15 year old me on, on, a, on a windy tornado watch day in Missouri, down in the basement with a Game Gear playing Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner with my brother and punching each other on the arm over like, who's gonna get to the end of the level first. Well, I kept their mind off of a natural disaster, right? And my mom laughs about it. Um, you know, the, the, the person in my study who talked about their father and talked about, you know, these deeply important memories where you got the impression that for her, when she sees Mario Kart, she sees dad. I don't want to use the word like validating, but it does, maybe it is validating. It, it's validating to know that those experiences weren't the frivolous pathological experiences that, that we were told they were going to be, right? That's been pretty cool. I also have learned that I am still quite terrible at many games and that the NES and the Master System and the Sega Genesis are very, very hard. So if anybody is listening and can't figure out why they still can't beat Earthworm Jim or they're still stuck in Landstalker, a PhD in game studies is giving you a license to say the game is hard, right? Nick Bowman, thanks for sharing your research with us. Really appreciate your time today. Sure, thanks for having me. I'll talk anytime. Thanks for listening to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between WAER and the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. 
Our associate producer is Emma Hudson. And a special thanks to Dr. Regina Luttrell, Associate Dean of Research and Creative Activity. Find more from the department at newhouse.syr.edu research. You can find more about this podcast at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Kevin Kloss. Thanks for listening.